Hey, Dunker Punks. Thanks for tuning in for another episode of the Dunker Punks podcast. If you listen to the show regularly, you know that usually we like to open the show with a question for you to think about, but this time I've got a task for you. It's pretty easy. Repent. All right, so you get down to repenting while we listen to some Dunker Punks music from Jacob Krause. To the Dunker Punks podcast. My name is Emmett Eldred, and I'm one of your hosts. Um, let me just take a status update. How is that repenting going, everybody? All right, so you probably know by now that I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek with the whole repenting thing. Uh, it's not as easy as it sounds. We've all seen the cliche repeated in movies, on TV, in comedy, a severe and frumpy minister standing in the pulpit calling on his congregation to repent. A wizened and more than slightly eccentric dude on the street corner heckling passers-by about the closeness of the hour and the precarious state of their salvation, calling them to repent. It's Thanksgiving, and your grandmother peers at you over the mashed potatoes and asks you about your walk with the Lord, and she really says, you know, you ought to repent. So most of us have a pretty iffy experience when it comes to people calling on us to repent. But on today's episode, Church of the Brethren pastor and theologian Dana Cassell takes a closer look at repentance. She puts it in biblical context and explores the way it fits into the church's calling to reject the trappings of empire. She'll open up about her personal experience with repentance, and by the time she's through Dunker Punks, I bet that you're going to want to repent too. So, thank you for tuning in, and please enjoy this episode of the Dunker Punks podcast. Dana, take it away.
Hey, hey, Dunker Punks. Dana Cassell here with another installment of Living as Dunker Punks in the Middle of Empire. This time, I thought maybe I'd talk about one particular part of a Dunker Punk training regimen. I think we're going to talk today about repentance. Repentance. Ew, right? Who wants to talk about something as stale and musty as repentance on this, like, punk podcast? I mean, where do you even hear that word anymore? I see it when I'm driving through the back roads of um, Southwest Virginia on signs that say in all capital letters, Repent! Jesus is coming! And I hear it sometimes when I spin the radio dial looking for local bluegrass music. Country preachers get fired up and start telling all their congregations to get right with God, repent before it's too late. Repentance sort of sounds like a word you might hear in a Sunday morning sermon, or like something you might hear if you're listening to the political debates of a certain nature. But on a podcast, for punks, not the place to talk about repentance. In English, according to the good old Oxford English Dictionary, repentance means sincere regret or remorse. But what would you say if I told you that what we think that word means is not really what it means? At least, not in Scripture. A few examples. In Scripture, at least when we read the Bible as it's translated into English, we hear things like this about repentance. From Jeremiah chapter 18, he said, Can I not do with you, Israel, as this potter does? declares the Lord. Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. If at any time I announce that a nation or kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed, and if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then I will relent and not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. Interesting. Also, from the Hebrew Bibles, the prophet Ezekiel in chapter 3 says, But if you warn the wicked, and they do not repent from their wickedness, or from their wicked way, they shall die for their iniquity, but you will have saved your life. Mm-hmm. And then the word, it shows up in the New Testament, too. It's not just one of those Old Testament concepts. In the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 3, Matthew tells us, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, you know what he says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And Jesus himself also uses this word in Luke chapter 13. Now, there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, do you think these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. So, this word, repentance, it's all up in scripture. And if we trust the English translation that comes to us, we hear those Old Testament prophets saying that God will refrain from uprooting nations if they feel sincere regret. That if the wicked who got warned about how awfully they were behaving, if they just summon up a little bit of remorse, they can save their lives. (laughs) And if we trust the English translation in the New Testament, that repent word, we hear John, that crazy Baptist, preaching to everyone gathered there at the Jordan River that the kingdom of God is coming soon. So they really better feel regretful and fast. And then we hear Jesus telling his disciples that unless they start emoting some remorse, they'll perish here and now. 
And I just have to say, that does not make a lot of sense to me. I mean, we feel the way we feel. We don't summon up emotions at will. If I don't feel regret, I can't make myself feel it any more than I could make myself feel scared or happy or anxious. We have lots of choices about what we do with our emotions, how we use them, how we react to them, how we express them, but we don't really get to choose whether or not we feel them. So if we read the word repent in the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament gospels and think we're hearing those prophets and John the Baptist and Jesus tell us how we should feel, that just sounds like a sort of strange command. Surely this word repent can't really be just feeling bad about something we've done. And actually, it isn't. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word that often gets translated repent when we read it in in English is used in some form in all of the Old Testament over a thousand times. The root of that word in Hebrew is pronounced shub, and it actually means return, as in return to God or return to the Lord. Those Hebrew prophets, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, are not warning the wayward people that they really should be feeling bad about it themselves. They're telling them to change their direction, to stop behaving so badly, to return to the covenant they received from the God who created them. Those prophets are calling God's people to return to their true identity, the most important relationship that they have. And in the New Testament, John the Baptist wasn't out there in the wilderness wearing camel's hair and eating bugs and yelling about feeling regret. The word John the Baptist proclaims as he announces the coming of the kingdom of God is a Greek word. And in Greek, the word is metanoia. It's used 34 times in the New Testament, and it means not feel bad about something. Metanoia means to have one's life radically changed. It might be better translated instead of repentance as conversion or transformation instead. In scripture, in the Hebrew and in the Greek, the writers of these biblical letters and prophecies and gospels, the idea of repenting is not as anemic as it sounds to our ears when we hear it in English. It's not about pretending to feel bad about something particular that we've done, and it's not about an empty regret. The biblical words that get translated as repent actually mean something much, much more radical. They mean to turn ourselves entirely around, to return to the purpose God created us for, to be completely transformed, to start living in an entirely new way. That sounds a little more dunker punk to me. So if that's true, if repentance is not just feeling bad about something, but a transformation, what is that teshuva, that metanoia, kind of repentance actually look like? You probably are thinking of examples right now from your own life or people you know, but I can tell you a story from my life. I grew up in Roanoke, which is a city in southwest Virginia, a solidly southern middle-class white girl. Life for me when I was a kid was super safe, easy, and fun. My whole family was right there. We always had enough money And as far as I knew, violence and poverty were things that happened far away in other places. But over the last few years, I started paying attention to the world in different kind of unavoidable ways. 
as I moved around and lived in different cities and met different kinds of people, I started learning about racism and poverty. And it became clear to me that maybe having ancestors who fought in the Civil War for the Confederacy might be a more complicated inheritance than I was raised to believe. I began to listen to people whose lives were shaped by those factors, poverty and violence and racism, that I grew up believing to be far away from me. And what I heard was pretty horrifying. The way I understood the world was changing, slowly but surely. As I listened and learned, I realized that I harbor deep and ugly racism within my own view of the world. I realized that I quietly assumed that people who didn't have enough money were poor because they'd probably done something wrong. I realized, slowly and painfully, that I had been very, very wrong about how the world worked. It was just a couple months ago that I came across a study published in 2015 from Harvard University that helped me see how my worldview was changing and why. This study followed kids all over the country who were born between 1980 and 1992, and it followed them through their whole lives, through their growing up years and into adulthood. And I was born in Roanoke in 1982, so this study was filled with data on people roughly my age. The study found that children who grow up in poverty have a really hard time getting out of poverty. And it found several factors that contributed to that difficulty. And so the researchers did this longitudinal study over all these years, and they ranked every county in the country in terms of economic mobility. That is, how hard or how easy would it be for a kid who grew up in this county, poor, to become not poor by the time they grew up? It was startling to me to read in this study that my hometown, Roanoke, Virginia, was ranked number 10. That means... It was the 10th hardest place for a poor kid to grow out of poverty in all of America. The researchers say that that that's because Roanoke ranks in the 98th percentile for three of the most important factors that contribute to keeping poor kids poor. Economic segregation, racial segregation, and single mother households. Roanoke also ranked in the 91st percentile for another factor that they call social capital, which is a measure of how people feel about their sense of community. I'm not really into statistics, but here's what I understand all this stuff to mean. What I understand that study to say is that Roanoke, my hometown where I grew up, is one of the most segregated places in the nation. If I grew up as a middle-class white kid totally unaware that racism, violence, and poverty were real things affecting real people, it was with good reason. My hometown has, for decades, preserved this veil of innocence for middle-class white people. I didn't know these things because the place I grew up was engineered to keep me from knowing them. It's been a slow, intense, and painful process to learn all these things that I did not know. I've had to recognize my own racism for what it is, listen and believe people that I previously couldn't bring myself to trust, and let go of more certainties about how the world works than I knew I had. And here's the thing. I have felt myself returning in all that. 
I have felt my entire way of being get upended and transformed. I have felt regret about the ways I've been formed to think about race and poverty and segregation, but it's more than that. I can feel teshuvah, metanoia. I can feel that I'm being transformed, made new. Michelle Alexander is a lawyer and an author who did intense research on racism in our legal system, and she wrote the book, The New Jim Crow. Last year, she left her job as a law professor in order to join the faculty of Union Theological Seminary in New York. Michelle Alexander is not a religious person. She did not grow up in the church or any other religious tradition, and she self-describes her decision to leave her really comfy job and go work at a Christian seminary as possibly one of the craziest things she's ever done. But after all her deep research on racism and justice and poverty in America, Michelle Alexander became convinced that the way toward healing for all of us together was not only research or policy, but actually what we needed was spiritual transformation. Here's what she said on Facebook when she announced her new job last year. Who am I to teach or study at a seminary? I was not raised in a church, and I've generally found more questions than answers in my own religious or spiritual pursuits. But I also know there's something much greater at stake in justice work than we often acknowledge. Solving the crises we face isn't simply a matter of having the right facts, graphs, policy analyses, or funding. And I no longer believe we can win justice simply by filing lawsuits, flexing our political muscles, or boosting voter turnout. Yes, Michelle Alexander says, we absolutely must do that work, but none of it, not even working for some form of political revolution, will ever be enough on its own. Without a moral or spiritual awakening, we will remain forever trapped in political games fueled by fear, greed, and the hunger for power. American history teaches how these games predictably play out within our borders. Time and again, race gets used as the trump card, a reliable means of dividing, controlling, and misleading the players so a few can win the game. This is not simply a legal problem or a political problem or a policy problem. At its core, America's journey from slavery to Jim Crow to mass incarceration raises profound moral and spiritual questions about who we are individually and collectively, who we aim to become, and what we are willing to do now. I think that's incredible that this renowned legal scholar and professor, in her deep dive into the problems of racism and injustice plaguing our nation, had this transformation, this change of heart, this metanoia, that she upended her entire life to go work at these problems among people who knew what it was to be spiritually grounded, to approach problems with a spiritual training regimen, to think about how we might exist together as a whole people in light of the moral traditions and spiritual ancestry that we've inherited. I hear Michelle Alexander calling us to the same sort of metanoia that Jesus did, the same kind of teshuva that the prophet Jeremiah did. We are in need of a spiritual awakening. We need to be turned around, returned to the justice of the God who created us, transformed by the renewing of our minds. And even though it still sounds kind of loony when I say it, we need repentance. So, Dunkerpunks, there you have it. 
next item on your spiritual training regimen, get out there and repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. so much for that deeply honest and eye-opening reflection on repentance. I know that I have the same dour notion of that word, repentance, and your teaching has really opened my eyes to the more positive implications of renewal and transformation that are embedded within the biblical context of what it really means to repent. Transformation. The Dunker Punks movement is all about transformation. Being personally transformed by the radical and provocative life ministry and sovereignty of Jesus, and then working as agents of change to transform our communities and our world to look more like God's kingdom. As Dunker Punks, we are called to repentance, and we must invite others to come along with us by issuing that same call to our congregations and to our communities. I think Dana said it best. It's not about pretending to feel bad. It's not about empty regret. Is something much, much more radical. To turn ourselves entirely around, to return to the purpose God created us for, to be completely transformed, to start living in an entirely new way. So, Dunker Punks, that really is your challenge for this week. Repent. for listening to the Dunker Punks podcast. You can find us online at arlingtoncob.org or on social media at Dunker Punks Pod. If you want to support what we're doing, reach out to us at dpp at arlingtoncob.org. The Dunker Punks podcast is a collection of people who, you know, we're, we're still working on that repentance thing, but at least we're trying to do it together. Um, and we're telling stories about people in the Church of the Brethren and elsewhere that are working on that repentance thing too. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett Eldred, and you can find me on Twitter at Emmett Eldred, and be sure to check out my website, dunkerpunks.com. Our other host is Nancy Fitzgerald. Our music is by Jacob Krauss, and our episodes are produced by Suzanne Lay. So thank you once again for listening, and be sure to tune in for our next episode, which drops August 5th.